Now let's continue our exposition of the book of Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 6, the first eight verses. The first eight verses constitute the last of the eight night visions given to Zechariah. And then in the following verses from 9 to the end of the chapter, there is a sort of addendum that I wish I could take both together this morning, but we can't do that. And we will look at that wonderful latter portion, Lord willing, next Lord's Day. But for now, this last night vision, chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Will you bow with me in prayer? Almighty God and our Father in heaven, how thankful we are that we have the Word of God. For we are not autonomous. We cannot set up our own standard and it be a true standard. We cannot know thy will apart from thy divine revelation to us. To know and to understand that we are in need of redemption requires that we have this book. To see the way in which it unfolded over time in thy wondrous plan. And to behold in the pages of scripture the incarnation of our Lord and his active and passive obedience, the shedding of his blood, his resurrection from the dead, his ascension on high, his intercessory work, and the longing that we now have for the return of our Savior Jesus Christ. All of this we find in Holy Scripture. And we confess before thee that even the best student of thy word is a poor student yet. And we would ask that the Holy Spirit would enlighten our minds and convict our consciences, and continue to renew our wills as we peer into sacred Scripture with a sense of excitement and anticipation every time we open the sacred page. And as we gather now to worship thy name around this Savior revealed in this text, we pray for the work of the Holy Spirit in ways in ways that the minister cannot know and no one around can know, but the Holy Spirit knows that each of us needs. And we ask, Father, that the lost would be saved and that the people of God would continue to grow in faith and repentance and obedience. And we pray that this word would be used in that way in our midst, even today, on this Communion Sunday, In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we ask it. Amen. Please take your copy of God's Word and stand. We begin at verse 1, chapter 6 of Zechariah. This is the Word of God. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, 
These are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. The chariot with the black horses goes toward the north country. The white ones go after them, and the dappled ones go toward the south country. When the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, go, patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. Then he cried to me, behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. People of God, I fear that among American evangelicals, there is largely a very low place of uh, view of the place of the church in our Christian living. For many, the church is dispensable in the means of grace, word and sacrament in the context of worship, simply not valued as God would have us value the means of grace that he has given to us. Now, that certainly is not biblical, and it certainly is not Reformed. Our Reformed heritage stresses the relationship of the redeemed to the church. And in this text before us, we see something of how God values his church that he has established of its place in history, and how the Lord regards the nations that oppose God's purpose and plan for and in and through his church. And I want to be on God's side of this matter, and I hope you do also. This eighth and final vision, depending upon how you may count them, connects with the seventh as a vision of judgment. The prior vision was a vision regarding judgment upon unbelieving Jews. This vision is of judgment upon the nations that oppose the people of God and God's purpose for his people. And so we will understand this vision when we simply look at the details. And so this is your first point, the vision's details. We begin here in this passage with the four chariots. And chariots, of course, are symbols of war. Do you recall the iron chariots as obstacles in the conquest of the land, how Jabin had 900 chariots that oppress the children of Israel for 20 years, or how in the war of Michmash in 1 Samuel 13 and 14, the Philistines put 30,000 chariots into the field. Much more fearsome, however, are the chariots of God when we come to a text like this and we learn that it is God doing war against those who oppose his own people. We later learn that these chariots go forth from God in this vision to certain geographical locations to conquer God's enemies, and so there should be a sense of awe within our hearts as we turn to this passage and we recognize again to say it is God doing war here, and no one can win war against God. When God goes to war, God wins the war. And the number four probably means, of course, the four, the four points of the compass. And what is revealed in this passage is the universality of judgment and its comprehensiveness. It is a theme that you find all in sacred scripture. All the way through, it's unavoidable 
If you come to the Bible, there will be a regular, constant, and ongoing emphasis upon the judgment of God, leading us ultimately to the cross in the only way that a sinner can escape that judgment through the atoning death of Jesus Christ. Now, the vision took place between two mountains, and almost universally, most students of this passage agree that it's the valley of Jehoshaphat between Mount Moriah, also generally speaking, called Mount Zion. It's in the same mountain range, and the Mount of Olives. Now, the Mount of Olives is very familiar to you. Let me remind you, the Mount Moriah is the hill in Jerusalem upon which Solomon's temple was built, the site of the threshing floor of Ornan, the site of the sacrifice of Isaac in Genesis 22, also called in Scripture Mount Zion. So here is the symbol of God's redemptive love for his people, the symbol of God's redemptive plan for his people, the symbol of God's redemptive purpose of the salvation of his people, and of that eternal, everlasting love that will not let his people go. And the valley between these mountains becomes a visible symbol of the Bible for the day of judgment. In Joel 3.12, for example, let the heathen be awakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there will I sit to judge all the heathen round about. And so this is the, the plain of Ezrelon. This is the valley of Jehoshaphat. This is, if you will, this is the place of Armageddon, about which we will read in the last chapter of this book in chapter 14 with regard to the second coming of Jesus Christ. So we have already the place of judgment, the proximity to the temple, the place where the chariots are observed. All of these things are coming together as God does war through the chariots of wrath that he has sent to the four corners of the world. But in this section, you will have noted also that the mountains are further described as mountains of brass. This description refers to the immovable foundation of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in order to emphasize the strength of God's purpose for and toward his people, he describes his people and his purpose and his plan for them all coming together in this this vision of mountains of brass. As we read in Jeremiah 1.18, For behold, I have made thee a defended city and an iron pillar and brazen walls against the whole land. And so God's sovereign decree, God's sovereign purpose is as immovable as a mountain of brass. The strength of God's loving purpose toward his people is unchangeable. Nothing can overcome his loving purpose for you, people of God. Nothing can change his eternal loving decree in your favor, people of God. Nothing can overthrow it. Nothing can hinder its purpose. Nothing can hinder its fulfillment. Indeed, the church is a mountain of brass. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. It is immovable. It is decreed of God. And so we confess the indefectibility of the church. That is to say, in some places in the world, at some times in the church, the church may be more or less. It may have few members, more members, but God will always have his people. And then these horses that we find as we read these opening verses 
pulling the chariots, and three of the colors already correspond to what we read in the opening part, portion of this in chapter 1, verse 8. But taking Revelation 6, 2 also into consideration is helpful for interpreting these. So the black horses represent undoubtedly grief and famine and death, and the red ones blood and bloodshed and war, and the speckled one pestilence and plague, and the white horses represent victory, in this case the victory of God for his people. And you will have noticed in verse 7 and also in verse 3 that these horses that go forth drawing these chariots in judgment are referenced as strong, because strong is the nature of the judgment of God behind it, his divine omnipotence. This is the strength of Jehovah of which we read in this passage. And there in verses 4 and 5, then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, these are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. So the four, again, standing for the points of the compass, the four winds of heaven, the extent of God's judgment, the comprehensiveness of God's judgment are sent from before the Lord himself as symbols of God's judging authority. And the four, meaning their universal and comprehensive judgment over the nations which oppose him. And their mission is found in verses 6 through 8. The chariot with the black horses goes toward the north country, and the white ones go after them, and the dappled ones go toward the south country. When the strong horses come out, they are impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, go patrol the earth. So they patrol the earth. Then he cried to me, behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. What is their mission? Well, these are the destinations of war that God intends against those who oppose him. Two of the char chariots go to the north country, which in, in, in the prophets means Babylon. And one goes south, that is to say, to Egypt, because Babylon and Egypt were inveterate enemies of the people of God, inveterate enemies of the purpose and plan of God to redeem his own. And in verse 7, another team went throughout the earth indicating God's purpose to deal with all the enemies of his church. And the way it's put in verse 7 is very striking. Did you notice? When the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. You, you see the, the horses being held back, as it were. They, they are ready to go. They are ready to take the judgment of God, the condemnation and wrath of God to those who are his enemies. They are, in other words, eager to fulfill their God-given task. Someone has written rightly that the special prophetic application of what Zechariah had beheld was at that moment connected with the kingdom of Babylon on the north and Egypt on the south. Between these two powers, God would sustain his feeble flock, checkmating every effort to destroy them till Messiah should himself appear. And so in verse 8, the focus is upon Babylon, the great enemy, that city that becomes a symbol in sacred scripture of a worldview that opposes God. Go to the north country. He sends his chariot of wrath. And it is only about three years 
after this vision that Babylon revolted against the Persians and were destroyed, utterly and completely destroyed by Darius. God orchestrated that judgment. God demonstrated his wrath upon ancient Babylon. Do you see how awesome this is to consider that the nations who are outside of Christ, who oppose him, will inevitably fall under his judgment and wrath? This was the judgment of God. And as our Presbyterian forefather T.V. Moore says, now the winds whistled through the reeds of the Euphrates where Babylon then sat in her pride and loneliness, desolation and death, are stationed there the sentinel witnesses of the truth that his word returns not to him void, that his spirit is quieted in the land of the north. God's spirit, it says, was quieted. through this judgment upon Babylon. Look at verse 8. Then he cried to me, Behold, those who go toward the north country, that's Babylon, have set my spirit at rest in the north country. It is an anthropomorphic way of saying that the Lord was pleased to fulfill his promise to defend his people in the punishment of her enemies. We see similarly in Ezekiel 5.13, Thus shall mine anger be accomplished, and I will cause my fury to rest upon them, and God says, I will be comforted. Why? Because he has kept his word, because he has kept his promise to his people, and because he has exercised his absolute justice. And so even in these few symbols that we see here, we see something of the natural haughtiness of the human heart and how it shows often nationally God's attribute of justice that lays the axe to the root of this pride and that God is just and ratifies his justice in his just judgments in the world. Now, on the face of it, that's clear. It's not a difficult night vision to interpret. But what we have seen thus far is remarkable, and the essential meaning being clear, we draw a doctrine from it. And so this is the second thing. The second thing is the central meaning, the central meaning that is here. What teaching do we draw from it? What doctrine do we find here? And it is this. The enemies of the church of Jesus Christ shall be punished by God. And we have here what scholars sometimes call the continuous fulfillment of prophecy. And what is meant by that is simply that any judgment that God brings in history is simply a foreshadowing of the ultimate day of judgment that is to come, in which these historical judgments, exercising wrath on Babylon, for example, though awesome to consider, will pale in comparison. The imminent application to Babylon and Egypt, it is true that is the meaning of the text, but there is a principle of divine government here. 
Had Babylon heard this prophetic vision, they would have laughed in the prophet's face. The same with Egypt, because there was no fear of God before their eyes, just as is true in most of the nations today. But where is Babylon now? Where is the greatness of Egypt? Where are those nations that have opposed God in history? And so it will be with every nation that opposes his church. And the final judgment of this divine principle, the final exercise of this divine principle awaits the return of Jesus Christ. When again, as our forefather T.V. Moore said, then and not until then shall this vision receive its last, its most terrible and complete fulfillment in the dread scenes of that day for which all other days were made. I was struck deeply when I read that statement of T.B. Moore. By the statement, the dread scenes of that day for which all other days were made In other words, every day of every nation, every day of my life, every day of your life is made for that one day when Jesus comes again on the day of judgment. Now for the believer... We want to be able to go before the Lord. And as we say to him, we stand before thee only in the righteousness of Christ. It is a day of joy for us. But at the same time, I give an account. And I want to be able to say, oh, blessed Savior, despite my sins and failings, I'm under the value of the blood of Christ, but the Spirit of God has worked in me. And I give all the praise also, not only for justifying righteousness, but sanctifying grace and persevering grace and bringing me home now with a sinless heart. But for the nations before God that will be judged, for every individual that goes before God, remember, Every day, our responses, our choices, our reactions to the Word of God, to the truth of the Gospel, to the preaching of His Word, every day is made for that day, which is an overwhelming consideration. That a principle of divine procedure in history is found here, that lesser judgments point to the day of judgment is a profound truth that we should remember and not forget. And God's judgments will be executed in history even when, even when circumstances seem to contradict it. I'm sure that even though it was prophesied, even though it was promised, even though it was told to the people of God, there were faithful people who also were taken off into Babylonian captivity, who probably were perplexed as to the judgment of God, the chastening of God on his people. And here is Babylon, wicked Babylon, being used of God to chasten his people and now punished by God because of the wickedness of their hearts. 
who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor. The Lord has not promised his church that we will not endure hardship. It has not promised his church that we will not endure persecution. Indeed, he has promised the opposite to us. And so, for example, he says in 1 Peter chapter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And the point of that passage in Peter is that no matter what we experience as a fiery trial in this world, whether it be chastisement, whether it be whether it be, even though we are not guilty of a particular sin, we are in a nation that is, and we, and we experience what falls upon the nation to one degree or another, whatever it may be, even then, Peter says, you must look toward your future hope with anticipation. And it's preparing you for that future hope. So do circumstances sometimes seem to contradict God's sovereign providence? I know how difficult this can be to contemplate. I know it existentially. I know it personally. But please remember that our circumstances are not our authority in life. We are not to respond on the basis of our circumstances. Nor are our feelings our authority in life. We are not to respond on the basis of our feelings. That is not to deny feelings. They should be biblically dealt with, but we do not respond on the basis of our feelings, nor should we respond on the basis of our moods. I learned from J. Gresham Machen long ago to distrust my moods. He says we are to distrust our moods. A man should not desert the conviction of his better moments because the dark moments come. Hear that again. A man should not desert the conviction of his better moments because the dark moments come. And so the child of God who was taken off into Babylon because the nation had sinned, who really trusted in the Lord who would come, who was a a faithful man of God, could not trust his moods, but had to trust what he could not see, that God was for him and not against him. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, we sometimes sing. But whether we can see it or not, whether or not our ability to discern God's hand, still it is true that all that happens in history, all that happens in nations, all that happens in revolutions and oppositions to the truth, all is under the sovereign hand of God for the salvation of his elect the extension of his kingdom, and the punishment of his enemies. And so we have in these short verses this breathtaking view of history and that God is at work in history. We're not deists. God simply creating and letting the world go. He is intimately involved in the affairs of nations and of men. And he orders all events and controls all human rebellion for his glory and for the good of his church, whether we can see it or not. And the course of history is in the hands of the Lord. You remind you that in Psalm 75, 
we read, For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. And so this text is a text about the providence of God. Let me remind you of what our Heidelberg Catechism, that wonderful continental reformed confession of faith, says about providence. Take it to heart once again. What dost thou mean by the providence of God? The almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were, by his hand, he upholds and governs heaven and earth and all creatures, so that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yea, all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. What advantage is it to us to know that God has created and by his providence doth still uphold all things, that we may be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and that in all things which may hereafter befall us, we place our firm trust in our faithful God and Father, that nothing shall separate us from his love, since all creatures are so in his hand that without his will they cannot so much as move. People of God, men are responsible for their own sinful deeds, but the Lord is sovereignly in control, just as he was when Jesus Christ, our Savior, went to the cross. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, like rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. Proverbs 16.4, the Lord hath made all things for himself, yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. But if this text is about God's sovereignty over men and nations, if this text is about the providence of God, this text also is about the mediatorial reign of Christ. It's the reign of your mediator, of your of your God and King, Jesus Christ, of whom we read in Ephesians chapter 1 that he is head over all things to his church. This is the mediatorial cosmic rule of Christ ordaining and maintaining all things for the sake of his church. This is the one of whom we will read in the passage next week that he is a priest upon his throne. A priest who died for your sins, people of God. And a king who rules and reigns over you. And who will defeat and defend you from all your enemies. As a priest, he died for you. As a priest, he intercedes for you. As a king, he rules you. As a king, he defends you. People of God, Jesus Christ is your priest who also is king. You know, the key to spiritual declension, I am absolutely convinced, I mean the key to getting out of spiritual decline, the key to avoiding backsliding, the key to, to having warm and loving hearts toward the Lord rather than dry souls, the key is to fill your mind and to fill your heart with a biblical vision of who 
the triune God is. To remember his attributes, to remember his characteristics, to remember that this great, infinite, eternal, unchangeable God is for you and not against you. The key to spiritual declension is to once again have a heart that is consumed with a passion for the glory of God. The key to avoiding spiritual declension and and the way out of it is to bow the knee that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father and to daily for us together to learn how to bow the knee before him now. Lord, I see from Scripture something of thy greatness. Lord, I do not understand what's happening to me. I do not understand what's happening to others around me that I care for. I do not understand what's happening to the, to the nation of which I'm a part. I do not understand what's happening to the nations of the world. But I do know there's this long river of providence that is being fed from all the various tributaries. And as Jonathan Edwards said, in the end, will disgorge into the glory of God. And we will understand we will see one day without doubt. Do you know why I selected that passage from 1 Kings 19 to be read this morning in our scripture reading? It is because we read here of judgment upon Babylon, judgment upon Egypt, the chariots going out to the nations, the judgment upon the nations, but in the midst of those things, as history moves along, is his church in Iran, in North Korea, in Saudi Arabia, in the United States of America, in the United Kingdom, in Germany, in France, or wherever. And the Belgic Confession says, in chapter 27, I'm jumping into a context, this Christ hath been from the beginning of the world and will be to the end thereof, which is evident from this, that Christ is an eternal king, which without subjects cannot be. This holy church is preserved or supported by God against the rage of the whole world, though she sometimes for a while appears very small and in the eyes of men to be reduced to nothing." and in the eyes of men to be reduced to nothing. As during the perilous reign of Ahab, the Lord reserved unto him 7,000 men who had not bowed the knees to Baal. So the judgment of God comes, and we can be like Elijah. Lord, just take me away. Take me out of here. I'm I'm exhausted with it all. And God says, listen, I have yet 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to this pagan image, who have not kissed this image. I'm for my church, people of God. Glory to God. And Guido de Bray, who wrote this confession, used in our continental Reformed churches, the Belgic Confession, from which I just quoted, that referenced 1 Kings 19, and also, of course, it is repeated in Romans chapter 11, Guido de Bray was not writing theoretically. 
He gave his life for writing this confession. The Reformed Church in Belgium died by the multitudes for standing for the truth as it is in Jesus. But they confessed their faith. People of God, that's the call. God says this is what He's doing. He doesn't explain it to us. He's not accountable to us. The judge of all the earth shall do right. Bow the knee and simply believe. We walk by faith and not by sight. And say with Job, though he slay me, yet will I praise him. Glory to God. He loves you, people of God. He loves you, church of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's for you. He's your king to defend you. Let me conclude like this. Heart and soul, the enemies of Christ, the enemies of his church, those who hate the gospel, must oppose the view that I have just stated, that he rules, that he reigns, that he is defending his church, that he will judge the nations, that though they act as if God were not, he is. They must oppose this. They rise up against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. They will not have this man rule over them, but rule he does. And heart and soul, the world must oppose it, but heart and soul... We, believers in Jesus, must believe and embrace the truth that Christ defends His church and that He will destroy His enemies, rooting out of our hearts all Arminianism and every low view of God, giving us a high view of God rather than that view that is so destructive of the Christian life. So maybe you say to me, Pastor, should we really be longing for this day? This day to which all days are adding up this day when Christ comes again, this day when there will be an ultimate judgment of the nations. Pastor, should we really desire this, the judgment of the wicked? Well, I understand the emotional force of the question. We're not deserving of God's grace. Humble gratitude must characterize our lives. We do not speak in pride of God's judgment upon the nations. We're only delivered from it by grace. We should desire lost sinners to come to know the Lord just as we have come to know the Lord. But the answer ultimately is yes. We should believe what God says about his sovereignty, leaving the mysteries to him. And this is encouraging for the church in the midst of suffering and in the midst of persecution. Your God has not forgotten you. Your God is for you, not against you. Your God is a king who defends you. And we should desire that God is glorified. That should be first in our hearts. And that he will be glorified in the salvation of his people. And yes, awesome consideration, God will also be glorified in the eternal punishment of the wicked. And so in light of all that God is, I call upon someone who may be here today who opposes God, who does not trust in Christ, to lay down the weapons of your warfare 
and to bow the knee and to trust in Christ alone for salvation. Because it needs to be proclaimed, it's in text after text of Scripture, that a day of judgment is coming. And you need a king to defend you. And you need a priest through whose substitutionary sacrifice you can be saved. Come to Christ. There is no other Redeemer, no other Savior, no other way. And people of God, the distinction between ourselves and the world doomed to destruction could not be more clear. It is a distinction made alone by God and His grace. That God who has shown you sovereign, free grace judged your sin at Calvary when Jesus Christ bore the wrath of God in your place which we remember this morning at this table. And upon this rock, we will stand in that great day when Jesus comes again. When the final storm comes, we will stand. This makes the church a mountain of brass. Because underneath are the everlasting arms. Because God's purpose and plan for His church is an immutable decree. Because of his predestinating grace, which enabled us to sing in a hymn just a few moments ago, crowns, crowns and thorns may perish, kingdoms rise and wane, but the church of Jesus constant will remain. Gates of hell can never against that church prevail. We have Christ's own promise And that cannot fail. Amen and amen.